Uh, hey, we're live. Great. <sighs> I can't follow directions. Anyway, welcome back to another step down the face of Mount Sinai. We're talking this summer about the, the Ten Commandments, ten core rules that God gave the Hebrew people that became central to their identity as a nation. And what we've been doing this summer is, is just kind of eavesdropping on God's conversation with the Hebrews so that we can put ourselves in their shoes and learn how to move forward better in the Christian life. We've worked our way through the first half of the commandments at this point, and it's this second section, commandments 5 through 10, that are essentially a, a list about how to play well with others. By marking out boundaries around life and property and justice and family, God is going to establish for the Hebrews a society that knows how to live well. Today, we're going to tackle commandment number six. You can find it in Exodus 20, verse 13. It's just two short words in Hebrew. Don't kill. Most recent Bible versions update the translation a bit to read, don't commit murder. The commandment is, is pretty straightforward. Don't intentionally take the life of another human being. But let's begin the unpacking of this command by, by jumping backward in the Bible. When we open the, the first few chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis, we encounter the story of creation. Galaxies, stars, our earth, plants, animals. God builds it all. And the pinnacle of his creation is people. God makes Adam and Eve perfect and sinless, and through their own choices, you know the story. They manage to, to break things. And so sin and all of its consequences enter reality and become a normal part of the human experience. God kicks Adam and Eve uh, out of the garden they created for them. And, and now, moving forward, human existence is, is marked by a rift in its relationship with God. Adam and Eve go on to have lots of kids, and the Bible zooms in on the story of their first two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain makes his living as a farmer. Abel makes his living as a rancher. And when both brothers make an offering to God, Abel shows up with the very best meat that his flocks can offer. Cain shows up with some veggies. And God just isn't too impressed with Cain's gift. And so Cain responds with anger and begins to pout. And God, in his mercy, pulls Cain aside and essentially tells him, sin wants to control you. And sin's doorway into your life is anger. Cain ignores the warning. He tracks down his brother Abel, he lures him into a field, and he kills him. The very first sin mentioned in the Bible after the Garden of Eden, it's murder. And the Bible records how humanity goes downhill from there. As the human population expands, sin expands right along with it. We only get six chapters into the Bible before God decides that he has to deal with this problem of human wickedness. And if you know the story of Noah and the ark, you know exactly how God deals with it. God uses a flood to destroy everyone except for Noah and seven of his family members. Near the end of that story of Noah, as Noah and his family step off the ark, 
God gives him three commands that applied to humanity as it reestablishes itself. First, have lots of kids. Well, that makes sense because the earth needed people at this point. Uh, the second command was don't eat any blood. That is, mark out a respect for life by carving out boundaries and just making blood in the diet off limits. The third thing that God tells Noah is that murder must be punished by execution. This seems like a, a harsh and extreme punishment. But the reasoning God gives Noah is very, very specific. God reminds Noah that way back in creation with Adam and Eve, that when God fashioned human beings, he created them in his own image and likeness. Our very existence, what it means to be human, is linked to the nature of God himself. Being made in God's image means that every human being is a reproduction and a reflection of part of God's nature. The unborn, the developmentally disabled, the rich, the poor, the righteous, the wicked, male, female, every race, every nation, every age, every single human being carries the image and stamp of God himself. We'll let the theologians haggle over everything that's involved with being made in God's image. But there's one truth that we can't escape. Because every human being is made in God's likeness, every human being has built-in value. And God reminded people of that value through the punishment he gave Noah for murder. The cultural rule at play here is the law of equal payback. You, you may have heard it as an eye for an eye. Equal payback is the way ancient societies ran. It limits revenge, and it attempts to restore the value of what's lost when a wrong is committed. So if you steal my phone, when you're caught, and you will be caught, I'm entitled to be made whole. And the cost of being made whole has to be paid by the person who did the misdeed. I think this is God's reasoning here. If the highest value that can be placed on a human life is being made in the image of God, what's the image of God worth? If a murderer took a human life, what could that murderer give up that was equal in value to the life taken? Only his own life. Creation, Cain and Abel, the flood, we don't get very far in scripture before humanity simply forgets that it's made in God's likeness. See, we're hardwired to value others in the way we value ourselves. So if you forget your own value, you're going to forget the value of others, and murder is going to be the natural result. And it's through this commandment to Noah to punish murder through execution, that God is going to push back against humanity's short memory and our ability to forget so quickly who we are. Hold on to this idea of being made in God's image because we're going to circle back around to it. But for now, let's just move forward in Scripture really quickly to get the big picture about this commandment number six, not to murder. And the big picture is really easy to paint. The Old Testament... Filled with murder. Villains like Saul and Abimelech and Ahab, murderers. 
heroes like Moses, David, Samson, murderers. Commandment number six just doesn't always restrain people from killing others. But if we keep working our way through the pages of Scripture, we eventually make it to the New Testament and the words of Jesus. During his most famous sermon, Jesus is going to contrast what the kingdom of heaven looks like compared to the standard diet of just surface-level righteousness that the religious leaders regularly fed the people. And when Jesus starts talking about the law, he says this in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were, they were professional regurgitators of Scripture. They considered their job to be righteous by repeating what Scripture said. Moses said, don't murder anyone. So the religious leaders made sure everybody knew that law and everybody pretty much kept that law. And the religious leaders could walk away from, from their teaching and pat themselves on the back for promoting righteousness simply because they repeated well what Scripture said. But when Jesus comes along, he didn't just tell people what Scripture said. In his divine authority, Jesus told people what Scripture meant. He said this is what the, the heart of Scripture is all about. And in this part of his sermon here in Matthew 5, Jesus is going to open each statement that he makes about one of the laws he's dealing with by saying, you've heard it said. And then he's going to repeat the straightforward command and the law that everybody knew. But then he pivots and he uses the phrase, but I say to you. Jesus stacks up his words against all of the words of the religious leaders and teachers who just repeated what scripture said. And during this sequence of, you've heard it said, but I tell you, Jesus is going to work his way through a bunch of laws, adultery, revenge, divorce, making vows. But he's going to start his discussion of the law by talking about murder. Here's what Jesus has to say about murder in Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus begins here by stating what everyone already knew. Murder comes with consequences. That's a bit of a no-brainer. But it's Jesus' next statement that begins to shove us in the direction that we need to go. Murder isn't what gets you into eternal trouble. Anger is. The two examples that Jesus gives uh, both have to do with anger that results in speech that undermines human dignity. The term rakah here is about the same as calling someone a blockhead or an idiot. Jesus is talking here about more than just a casual insult. He's talking about cheapening someone through demeaning speech. What we call slander was illegal in Jesus' day like it is in ours, and attaching a name like blockhead or fool to someone could get you into some serious legal trouble. 
Jesus points out that this, this term rakah would land you in front of the Sanhedrin, the local judicial council. And calling someone a fool demonstrates a guilt that deserves hell. I think Jesus' point here is that murderers are judged and punished from all angles. They're punished physically in the here and now and by God in eternity. And Jesus makes us start to squirm here a bit when he says that murder and slander deserve the exact same punishment because the heart that produces them is the same. These words of Jesus cut through all our rationalizations and all our excuses. He moves right past talking about murder to expose the heart that would murder if it could. And we've all given into that kind of anger at one time or another. This is the terrifying brilliance of God's grace. Jesus isn't content to allow us to pat ourselves on the back for our own righteousness just because we've never killed anyone. As always, his words through his spirit stroll boldly past our defenses and reveal what's in our hearts. Jesus exposes our hearts, not to condemn us, but to provide healing and to stir our imagination about the possibilities of what a heart and mind aligned with God's holiness really look like. And the truth that can convict us and change us if we let it is when Jesus steps in and says that having a heart comfortable with murder and comfortable with anger makes us just as guilty as a murderer. It's easy for us to look for a loophole in Jesus' words. There's no doubt in our minds like serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer who killed 17 people are clearly evil. Evil in a way that we don't comprehend and we don't relate to and we're certainly not guilty of. But the words of the Spirit of God in the pages of Scripture don't give us that kind of wiggle room. 1 John 3.15 Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Jesus in Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Some don't commit murder because they're afraid of the consequences. Others don't murder because they just never have the opportunity. But when murder is in our hearts, we just find other ways to kill. Ways to commit murder that don't leave us staring at our own blood-stained hands. And so, we can pretend and believe that our hearts aren't just as twisted and callous as those who commit actual murder. And the way that we kill best is through what we say. I've heard what attempted murder sounds like. I heard attempted murder while I was shopping for groceries, and I heard a mother in aisle over scream at her child, why do you always have to be so stupid? I've heard attempted murder when someone once coldly said to me, I'll be happy when you die. I've heard attempted murder. So have you. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. But that old saying just isn't true. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Sticks and stones 
and words, they're just different ways to kill. This is where we get back to the image of God. Don't murder because others are made in God's image. James chapter 3 expands this entire idea to cover what we say to and about other people. Here's James 3 verse 9. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. We get together in a setting like this, and we reach out with our hearts, and we lift up our voices and worship to God. But we've got this side habit going where we demean God by what we say to and about other people. James goes on to deliver the granddaddy of all understatements. Things shouldn't be this way. The reason we don't murder, the reason we don't act out of a a place of uncontrolled anger, and the reason we don't undermine others with what we say are all the same. We treat every other person as sacred because they have been made in God's likeness. Murder, violence, slander, they all spring from a heart that has never known or worse, has forgotten that human beings are made in God's likeness. And this is where Jesus' refreshing take on the law comes into view. Jesus is less concerned about violence and slander and murder than he is about us cultivating a heart where righteousness thrives. Get the heart right and the actions will be right too. Murder, violence, and slander end when anger can't find any traction in our hearts. We need to take a chunk out of our conversation this morning and devote it to some of the unhealthy ways anger plays out. Anger fuels words that kill, but anger doesn't always stop with just words. I have to admit that every once in a while, I'll get hooked by a road rage video. I'm intrigued that an incident between two drivers that takes less than a second somehow has the power to bring out the third grader in fully formed adults. Yelling, reckless driving, threats, fistfights, and even attempted murder spring from an immature relationship with anger. But for some of us, anger is a little bit closer to home than a YouTube or a TikTok video. I've seen the statistics, and it's just not reasonable to think that those of us in this room this morning are immune. There are some in this room who have been wounded by domestic violence. And there are some in this room who have committed domestic violence. And the excuses are there from assailants and victims alike. It doesn't happen very often. It's not likely to happen again. There's always sorrow and an apology. I can't tell anyone because I've got reputation or job or respect on the line. But all of those are rationalizations that expose the truth that there is simply a place in your heart where you accept that anger is your rightful master. If your life has been marked by anger expressed through domestic violence, it's time to move in a different direction. Moving in a different direction looks like my friend Jess, a high-level administrator in a metropolitan California school district 
who stood before his small congregation and confessed that he'd been physically abusive to his wife and that he needed to be more than a slave to his anger. Moving in a different direction looks like Gina, an Ohio woman my wife and I worked with who found herself married too young to a man who quickly became verbally and physically abusive. But Gina discovered that her value to God meant not allowing anyone to demean God's image in her or her children. And she fleshed out that reality by packing bags and moving her family to safety. On screen, you see the number for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It's worth memorizing. If you don't need it, I guarantee you that someone you know does. There's no interest here in labeling anyone as an abuser or labeling anyone as codependent. Our goal is to find the freedom that comes from having our feet firmly planted in the kingdom of heaven and growing to the point to where anger simply doesn't dominate us or wreak havoc in the lives of those around us. It's easy to say that anger and violence toward your spouse is wrong. It's a little harder when it's your kids. Children are a source of delight and joy, but it's usually children that are the hardest part of parenting. Children are that constant wild card in an otherwise orderly existence. And if you're a parent, you've got your moments. Work and finances get a little bit frustrating. House or truck issues throw a little bit of stress on your plate. And then your delightful little wild card sets you off. Most of us never get to the extremes in our anger toward children where we're at the expense of our children, we're generating headlines. But in our anger, we can still wound it so very deeply and never leave a visible mark. And it's easy to sidestep what's going on in our hearts because we're in charge. We're the moms, we're the dads, we're the teachers. And that means it's easy to justify our inappropriate expressions of anger because we have authority. Let's face it, grown-ups. We don't always get anger right with our kids. To, to begin to pull all of this together, let me wind down with some hope and some practical tips to start tackling this problem of anger. Looking back at anger in your life may be like looking back over the path of a tornado. Whether it's your anger or whether it's someone else's anger that you've been exposed to, that may have just filled your life with wreckage and debris. For others, it might not be a lifetime of anger. It may just be that one time that anger got out of control and you let the bridge burn. And now you've got a chasm in the relationship with no way back. Wherever you find yourself in relation to anger, there's hope. It's time to get out of the path of the tornado. It's time to rebuild that bridge. Here's how. First, you need to reclaim the value of God's likeness. One of the dirty little secrets of anger is that we usually make it all about us. We want to feel important. We want to be important. And so when someone slights us or disrespects us, the spirit of murder can well up in our hearts and motivate us to chase our own significance at the expense of someone else. But when we accept God's definition of who we are, 
We don't need to be more important. You cannot find more significance than being made in the likeness and image of God. And when we understand that others are made in God's image too, we realize that they're just as important as we are. When you remember your own value to God, you value others too. When we have a firm grasp on the reality that we're made in God's likeness, it's hard to get angry when someone slights us because there's no way to make us feel unimportant. It's hard to take out our anger on others because we understand that they're important too. We know who and whose we all are. Second, learn to get angry at what makes God angry. If you want to see God come unglued, interfere with his relationship with someone else. God's anger is always rooted in his perfect love. And so his anger is always directed at things or people that interfere in relationship with him. Injustice, immorality, misrepresenting who God is. These kinds of things build barriers between God and people, and they always make God angry. Let them make you angry too. Finally, reconcile. If you've wronged someone and that, that anger has fractured the relationship, do what you can to fix things. When Jesus said that the, the spirit of murder blossoms in an angry heart, I imagine that his audience squirmed just like we are. Our hearts have been the source of sticks and stones that have wounded others. And in his wisdom, Jesus points out that the path to freedom goes right through reconciliation. Right after Jesus says that murder and slander come from an angry heart, he says this in Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then, come and offer your gift. See, part of your preparation for worship, part of maintaining your relationship with God is doing the legwork to fix the relationships in your life that have been damaged by anger. That may be a spouse, a child, a, a coworker, a fellow Christian, or the cashier you yelled at on a stressed out day. That may mean putting your own pride on the shelf or maybe giving up looking like you've got it all together. It may mean surrendering the need to be right or respected. Reconciliation means being vulnerable. Try on this phrase for size. Will you forgive me because, and then fill in the blanks. Our enemy wants nothing more than to unravel everything good that God has made. In John 10, Jesus compares Satan's activity to the thief who breaks in with a desire to steal, kill, and destroy. And the truth that God told Cain still applies to us. Sin wants to control you. And sin's doorway into your life is anger. God's advice to Cain is, is echoed in Ephesians 4. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. It's when we give our enemy a foothold in our lives through anger that he's able to steal, kill, and destroy everything good that God is trying to build in and through us. 
We're all indicted by the words of Jesus. Anger has fueled gossip and slander and insults and resentment and hatred. And when we let the gospel confront us, we realize we're all murderers. We're all skilled serial killers. And the breath of fresh air that rushes into this gloomy condition is the Spirit himself who opens the curtains and floods our lives with the light of his presence, reminding us that we don't have to have hearts filled with murder anymore. God pulls out the broom of forgiveness and clears away the mess. And he begins to change and fill us with things that sound nothing like anger. Hear what anger doesn't sound like. It's what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. Every one of these characteristics that the Spirit of God produces in us crowds out inappropriate anger and fuels a power and a freedom to thrive in God's presence. Living life as he intended, free from anger as a brutal master. Let's pray. Father, we pray to be filled with the peace that comes from knowing you. Fill us with an awareness of your presence, the value of being crafted in your glorious likeness. Create in us hearts where selfish anger just can't find any traction. Through your spirit, fuel us to use our speech, to use our, our hands to bring life to those around us and to a world marred by anger. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. ourselves, to ask ourselves as we move into a remembrance of what Jesus did for each one of us, is ask the question, where is my heart? Jesus humbled himself to death on a cross. And those of us that participate in the Lord's Supper that has a small piece of bread and a cup of juice that represents the, the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus that was bruised and broken on the cross for each one of us has an opportunity to look into our own heart and evaluate do we have anger towards someone else? We need to go to somebody else. Maybe even before we remember what Jesus did for us so that it means something. That's hard. But let's take a moment as we come into this time 
to remember the body and blood of Jesus and what that means for each one of us so that we may live as a valued creation and in the image of God, just like the celebration of every single one of us in this room, just like every created human being. Let's take a moment to remember that.